Ephesians 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Holy and perfect God, we love you. You are the wonderful counselor and our mighty God. You are the everlasting father and the prince of peace. You are the maker of heaven and all of earth, and you are the giver of all life. You are so worthy of the praise that we give you. The universe with all of its splendor is a display of how glorious you are. Please help us to proclaim your glory Please help us to be bold in our praise of you and help us to not be ashamed or embarrassed of you, but to put you above everything else. Father, help us to desire things that please you. Help us to desire and become good at things that bring you glory. Help us to lay down the burdens of vain religion and idolatrous stuff. Because our value is found in you and all that pleases you and brings you glory. So point us in that direction, please, and open our eyes to those things. Father, we, we thank you for being with, with Mike and Kate Lindzen's daughter, Aki, yesterday. as She was in the hospital for an emergency appendectomy. Please help her recover quickly and know and help her to know that you love her more than we can even we can even imagine. And Father, also, please bless this time of worship. It's precious. Open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us this morning. And may only your word be spoken here today and give Pastor Duncan the boldness and clarity to proclaim it. In Jesus name. Amen. We obviously are returning this week again to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Today, we hope to conclude chapter 3, and that's an important milestone in the book of Ephesians. As we've said when we began the book of Ephesians, Paul basically divides this letter in half. For the first three chapters, he's talking about the spiritual blessings that the church has received in Christ. He also prays these two incredible prayers in chapters 1 and 3. In chapter 1, he prays that God would reveal to believers what they've been given in Christ. Three things, but in particular, his power, the resurrection power. In the prayer that we're just now completing at the end of chapter 3, Paul prays for more blessings for the church in the form of the the request that we would be empowered to genuinely experience the love of God. In this first half of the book, Paul in chapter 2 has also talked about this mystery, what he calls a mystery, this long revealed or long hidden secret about Jewish believers and Gentile believers being united in Christ being made a new human race, a new humanity with Christ as its head. Earlier in chapter 3, we saw this exalted picture of the cosmic church, the main theater on earth, Paul says, where God displays his wisdom to the angelic powers and rulers that look down on the planet. All of those blessings are in some way doctrinal, and what I mean by that is 
they're all the truth of who they are or who we are in Christ and what we've been given in Christ. When, Lord willing, next week we come to chapter 4, Paul significantly shifts and he moves from doctrine to application. So the second half of the book is really about application. It's as if he's saying by the way he structures the book, now that you've been reminded of the spiritual resources that God has to give you, in your supernatural empowerment, in your supernatural living, walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ Jesus. In the first half of the book, there are almost no commands, almost no imperatives at all. The second half of the book is chock full of commands. Today we come to the last two verses of the chapter and of the prayer and of the first half of the book. Paul concludes with a doxology. Now, many of you have sung the doxology many times, and so you know it by that. The word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means glory. So a doxology is a liturgical or a formal expression of praise to God for his glory, his power, and his might. And there are several doxologies in the Bible. There's one at the end of chapter 11 in Romans after he finishes the doctrinal section of that book. And there's another one at the end of Jude, powerful doxology that's very well known as well. It makes sense for Paul to end this section in verses 14 to 21 with a doxology, because this is Paul's prayer, and Paul's prayer, as we said, is a plea for God's people to experience part of God's glory, that is, his love for them. That is near the heart of Christianity, isn't it? Christianity is not a religion intended mainly to produce morally upright people whose lives exude moral excellence. If a person wants that, they should become a Mormon or a Muslim. That's not Christianity. Christianity is about God. The Bible is not a moral handbook. It's a revelation of God and his redemptive plan for history. At the center of that plan is Jesus Christ, God incarnate, who came in the flesh as the ultimate revelation of God. We always place the phrase God-centered on promotional material, on our bulletin, it's on our website. And the reason is because as truth-driven Christians, we understand that the point of being a Christian is to know God and love God and live for the glory of God through obeying God. It's a thoroughly God-centered enterprise. So after a prayer for God's people to experience God, it's appropriate for Paul to end with a doxology praising God for his manifold glories. That is what believers who experience God are wired to do by the Holy Spirit, to live in praise and worship of God in his glory. We are doxological people. You can tell your neighbors that this afternoon. <laughs> so let's read it again. In verse 20, Paul says, Now to him, he's speaking of God the Father, who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. When you boil these verses down to their essence, the main statement of this doxology is found in the first four words of 
verse 21, which just says, to him be glory. That's a doxology. That's the skeletal bones of this doxology. Everything else is attached to that structure. Everything else are details about what God does to deserve glory, where we find it expressed, and how long will he be receiving it. That's it. Glory is one of those Bible words that we throw around an awful lot, but my experience is not necessarily every Christian knows what glory really means, and it's a really important word. In the Old Testament, the, the first usage of glory is from the Hebrew word kabod, and it means weighty. God is a weighty God. That's what it means when we say God is a God full of glory. God is weighty. And as it relates to the weightiness of God, Tim Keller is very helpful when he tells us that God's weightiness means that compared to anything else, God alone is permanent. God alone is real. God alone matters. He says, if you drop an object that is heavier or weightier than water into water, there's a flood. It's basically a water quake. If you drop an object that is heavier than ice onto a coating of ice, there's an ice quake. Because the object has more glory than the water, the water quakes. In other words, wherever God reveals, wherever God expresses his glory, he displaces everything else. Because he has infinitely more weight, more significance, more value than anything or anyone else. That means that a biblical doxology like this one in verses 20 and 21 is a triumphant pronouncement that God is glorious, that he has revealed himself as most weighty, the one who in all of the universe, when his reality is experienced, there is a quaking. And in the Bible, as you see those moments where God reveals his glory, sometimes it is a terrified quaking to those who experience it. God's glory has a profound impact on everything else around. In the Bible, when God's people are given the grace to see the glory of God, that almost always causes them to feel overwhelmed. That's what we mean by God's glory, his weightiness. It's important to know that no one provides God with any glory as if he needed any. God is glorious in and of himself, but we can ascribe glory to God. Psalm 90, 29, we read it in the call to worship. Ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name, worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. So a biblical doxology like this one in verses 20 to 21 is a call for God to be seen as glorious. And I trust that's your heart. So when Paul says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, he is pronouncing that God's intrinsic, his inherent, his native glory, that that would be revealed, that that would be manifest in the church and in Christ Jesus. So let's unpack this doxology by asking three questions of it. The first question is, what glorious things can our God of glory do? Because that's what he says. That's what he begins with. In verse 20, Paul falls all over himself using repetition and redundancy to show God's glory. Notice five truths that are like a crescendo as Paul celebrates the glory of God. First, he he is a God who is able to do. That's the first expression of the great things God does, which means he's able to do work. The word in the original for do literally means power. 
God has power to do. The word in the original is dunamis, from which we get the word dynamite. In fact, there are three references to God's power in this one verse, and that helps us see what's at the center of what Paul is praising God about. God has power, an utterly inconceivable, limitless amount of power. God has power to do work, and he can work with breathtaking power in his church. Second, this verse tells us that God is able to do all that we ask. We could never make a request of God for which he does not have adequate resources. He has never in all eternity heard a request from anyone where his response was, I just can't do that. This implies that the children should be bold in our Ask Him, Our Father. John Newton, of course, wrote Amazing Grace. He wrote a whole lot of other really good hymns. One of them says this, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none could ever ask too much. Third, Paul says that God is able to do all that we ask or think. Okay, that's amazing, because this includes anything we could possibly imagine. There is nothing that could ever enter into your wildest imagination that would be beyond God's power to grant you. There is nothing our finite minds could ever conceive of that our infinite God does not have sufficient power to accomplish. God is never the weak link in our praying. We are. We ask too little. We ask without faith. We ask for the wrong reasons. The problem is never God. Fourth, God is able to do more and even far more than we ask or think. The reason we're breaking this truth down incrementally the way we are to kind of expose all of its parts is to reflect Paul's intention here, which is to overwhelm us. He intentionally uses this redundant language that God is able to do far more than we would ask or think means that, again, even in our wildest imagination, when we're scraping the Milky Way, we could never come up with some request that would present even the tiniest challenge to God. Whatever we could possibly imagine, he is able to do more and far more. Meditate on that a while and see if it doesn't build your faith. Fifth and finally, God is able to do far more abundantly than we ask or think. This word abundantly literally means exceedingly infinitely. Paul wants us to hear all these words he's piling up. Think about it. Technically, something is either finite or infinite. Literally speaking, nothing can be exceedingly infinite because by nature, anything that is infinite exceeds everything else. So to say exceedingly infinite or infinitely exceeding either way is redundancy. But the reason is because Paul is trying to describe a God who has infinite power. And in order to try to do that, he's stacking word upon word upon word here. God is exceedingly infinitely able to do. So that's Paul's answer to this first question. What glorious things can our God of glory do? The second question from this doxology is where? Where does God display this power to do these exceedingly infinite things? In what venue, in what arena does God do these works of extraordinary power? There are many answers to that question that fall outside these two verses. 
We saw back in chapter 3, verse 10, that he works in the heavenly realms. We'll look at more of that later. Another way he works in the heavenlies is in Colossians, verse 16 of chapter 1, where he says about Jesus, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So he displayed his power in creation by creating everything, and now his power is on display as every moment he holds the universe together. And the implication is that apart from his holding power, the cosmos would fly apart. But in his doxology here, Paul speaks of another venue where God does these infinite God-sized feats. In the second half of verse 20, Paul says that God works in this exceedingly infinite way according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. When he speaks of the power at work within us, he's talking, of course, about the Holy Spirit who indwells and empowers all believers. So the venue where God chooses to show his infinite power that is so stupendous that it moves Paul to give this amazing doxology is the church. This power to work in ways that are exceedingly infinitely above what could even enter our minds, much less our prayers, God is willing to express that infinite power in and through his church. This power is according to or in accord with the power at work within us. And that reflects back to what he's already prayed in verses 16 and 17. He prayed, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, believers, to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So when you combine this doxology and what it has to say about God's power in the church with what he said earlier, what he's praying is that we, by the Holy Spirit, would be strengthened in our inner being with this exceedingly infinite power so that we can experience God's love for us. Does anybody want that? I would want that. It's available to us, he says, on the condition that we pray for it. There's another example of Paul blowing us away with this infinitely high potential of the church and God's power that is available to us in the church. We saw also the centrality of the church as a theater for God's glory back in chapter 3. Before the heavenly authorities, God displays his glorious wisdom through the church. This is a wisdom so glorious that it commands the rapt attention of these massively powerful angelic beings in the heavenly realms who evidently cannot peel themselves away from gazing at the church to see the glorious wisdom of God. Ephesians reveals a church that most believers have little familiarity with. Now, we would easily recognize this amazing image of the church if it were the glorified church of Revelation chapter 21, when all believers will be perfected and made like Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that the glorified church will be radiant as we shine in the glory of God. Verse 19, the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. So the angelic beings, the entire created order, stands on 
tiptoe. They're holding their breath in anticipation of the revelation of the glorified church, the bride of Christ. We get that. We have little trouble believing that because we're going to be made like Christ. Christ is glorious, so we're going to be glorious. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about the church here on earth today. It is the church with all of its warts and sins and conflicts and compromises where too often we measure the strength or health of a local church by whether it manages to avoid internal conflict and public scandal. It's a pretty low bar. It's not where Paul is. It's the church on earth that reveals the glory of God. So why does a church endowed with so much potential, so much immeasurable power, only very rarely live up to supernatural equipping? Well, there's a whole lot we could say about that, but one of the answers from Ephesians is implied in chapter 1. In Paul's first prayer in chapter 1, he prays that we in the church would have the eyes of our hearts enlightened to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? In chapter 1, Paul does not pray that the church would somehow get this power. No, this power is already resident in the church. He prays that we would be supernaturally equipped to know and believe this in our hearts. A big part of the reason we don't see this in the church is because, apart from a miracle of God, the eyes of our hearts... That part of us that perceives the spiritual reality, that's blinded to this truth about the church. We're too busy focusing on ourselves and all the petty squabbles in the church and not nearly busy enough asking God to remove the blindness from our eyes so that we can see and believe what he says about the church, having this immeasurably great power. And he wants us to pray this according to the power at work within us. In one sense, this only makes sense. In the th if the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, fully God, possessing infinite power, dwells in and empowers the church, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul celebrates the immeasurable power of God in the church to experience God's love for us because God lives in the church. He dwells in the church, in each one of us. Our third question of the doxology is, what is the goal? What is the goal of God's working exceedingly, infinitely in his church? The function of verse 21 is to tell us what the goal is. Paul closes this section of the letter with God's goal for all of this. And speaking of God the Father, he writes, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. God's goal here, as it is in all of things, is that he would be glorified. And that he would be glorified for all time and all eternity. His power to do exceedingly infinite works in the church is for his glory. The goal is that he would be glorified in the church and in Jesus Christ. He will get glory in the church as his great power to experience him and his love for us is found and manifest in the church of Christ. And he will get glory through Jesus Christ because it's his church bought with his blood, his bride receiving his love. What are the, this is an amazing picture of the church. It's implied in all of Ephesians, but especially in this prayer and in this doxology. And when we get to the second half of the book of Ephesians, and we see the sometimes demanding requirements to walk worthily of the Lord, these truths can root us deeply in God's love and give us faith to do those things. 
We want to close because we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper here in a moment. But this first, let's look at two valid ways that we can apply this to our lives. The first question related to any text about God's glory is, as we think about our lives, is our ultimate aim in life for God to be glorified? Now, I didn't ask, if somebody asked us that question, we would check that box. This isn't about having the right answer. It's about what's in our hearts. Is our ultimate aim in life to live for the glory of God? This doxology expresses Paul's passionate desire for God to be glorified. Is that our driving passion? Isaiah 43, 7 speaks of God's people as everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. We were created for his glory. The Westminster Catechism is right that the end or the chief end of man, the chief end of humanity is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That's why God created humanity and he will be glorified in all of humanity. Is that the purpose of your life? God's going to be glorified in every single person. For those who don't know him, he's going to be glorified as they manifest his just justice as they suffer eternal punishment for their sins. God is glorified in sinners on earth in his mercy as he patiently waits for them to repent and turn to him. But he's glorified through his redeemed people in the church in other ways, some of which we've seen here in Ephesians. As you consider whether or not you desire or you have a passion for God's glory, think about this. If the Bible teaches that God created his people to glorify him, then God the Holy Spirit, who lives within believers, will powerfully exert in us God's desire for his people. That makes sense. So if you don't have a passion for God to be glorified in your life, as a professed believer, there is something seriously wrong. Because the desire for this glory of God is the driving passion of the Spirit of God who lives within believers. And we know that because Jesus said of the Spirit in John 16, He will glorify me. That's His job. If a professed believer does not burn or have a desire for a passion to glorify God, there can only be one of two reasons for that. First, he or she does not have the Spirit of God and is not a Christian. Or two, he or she has lived his life in such a way so as to greatly mute or dampen the influence of the Holy Spirit in their lives. That is, through unrepentant sin, they've quenched and or grieved the Holy Spirit. If our hearts don't beat for the glory of God, we have to urgently discover why not. How is God glorified in us? Well, in a thousand ways. But John Piper is right when he says, glorifying God means treasuring him and valuing him above all else to show him to be infinitely valuable above all else in our lives and in the world. It's as we continually rediscover what the treasure that God is, as we continually grow in our appreciation of God's goodness and kindness and grace and mercy toward us, as we persistently find our spiritual and emotional satisfaction in God over the things of this world that God is most glorified in us. Does that describe you? Are you most satisfied in God? A second question for application, and pardon the long question, but I didn't know how to shorten it. As you think about and work within the local church of Jesus Christ, 
Is our view of the church shaped more by faith and the power available to the church, which is what we've seen today, or the sin that we so easily see in the church? There are many reasons why the church is weak in the West in particular, but based on what we've seen Paul say about the church in Ephesians, surely one reason is that we've allowed the sin and failings that we can easily see in our eyes with the church, we've allowed that to erase what we can see by faith and what the Bible says about the church. This is one thing that Paul never did, which is amazing, because he ministered to some pretty lousy churches. If there was one church that Paul would have described as his problem child, which he wouldn't have, but it would have been the church in Corinth. It was a very sick church on so many levels. All you have to do is read First and Second Corinthians. This church was chock full of problems. Finally, at the end of Second Corinthians, he's forced to say, examine yourselves to see if you're Christians. It's that bad. It was a sick church, but the sin that he could see clearly in the church did not obscure the faith he had in the glory of God in the church. In chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, he contrasts two things. He contrasts the glory of the old covenant law through Moses with the far more glorious new covenant that God has with his church through Jesus Christ. And he writes in chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, this is where this contrast is coming. Now, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So he admits that the old covenant law with Moses, very glorious, so much so that the glory on Moses' was, face was radiantly bright. You couldn't look at it. That's impressive. That's an impressive amount of glory. But he says the new covenant through the Spirit that the church lives under is so much more glorious by comparison that it makes the shining face of the glory in Moses seem like nothing, a cipher, a shadow. The first reason is because in the new covenant, the Spirit of God miraculously makes dead people alive. Part of the reason why we don't see a miraculous church is because we don't understand that a Christian is a dead person who's been made alive, and that's a radical transformation. This is not about inviting Jesus into your heart. This is about dead people being raised from the dead. The Spirit of God is life-giving. Second, the ministry of the Spirit is far more glorious because it provides believers not condemnation, which is what the law did, but it gives believers the very righteousness of Christ whereby they can stand in the presence of a holy God without shame. This new covenant, as we're going to remember it in a moment, is purchased by the shed blood of Jesus. This is a covenant that provides atonement for our sins as we stand forgiven by God. The point of all of this is that the New Testament teaches that the church is a thoroughly supernatural entity. 
It has supernatural empowerment by the Spirit of God. It is rooted in the supernatural working of God to bring life to dead sinners and righteousness to those who are otherwise condemned. It supernaturally reveals God's manifold wisdom before the amazed stares of angelic authorities. Do you suppose that this supernatural element of the church should figure prominently into how we relate to the church? I think it should, because it did for Paul. If this doesn't contribute to how we view the church, we know what to do. Because it says in chapter 1 that we should pray that God would cause the eyes of your hearts to be enlightened to know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. You pray to have your eyes be enlightened, the eyes of your heart, your spiritual perception to see this glory, this power in the church, power like the power that raised Jesus from the dead, ascended him to heaven, and seated him above all the spiritual authorities in the heavenlies. That power is in the church. And Paul says, pray that you see it. That was Paul's prayer for the glorious church of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, may it be ours as well for his glory and for our joy. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we just confess, I confess anyway, that I am so too often strung up on all the problems, and I, I fail to see the bride as she is. And Father, it's very easy for us to be critical of the bride, especially if it's in another state or another city or the one across the street. Help us to remember, that's the bride of Christ. And I don't think you probably like too well when we say bad things about your bride. But God, I pray that the glory in the church would be seen by us. And we do pray that you would enable the glory of the church to be made more manifest. And we know that that comes mainly as we experience the love of God in Christ. God, only you can do that. We're all in need. We all sometimes wonder if you love us or you care. Are you there? God, we need you to enable us to experience your love. Not read about it in a book, not check off a box, but to know it by experience. And Father, I thank you that the best way that we can know that is by meditating on the ultimate expression of your love, which is the cross of Christ. Help us now as we enter into the Lord's Supper to do that. For Jesus' sake, amen.